0: Welcome to today's conversation on collaborative transformation, how to engage in constructive disruption. We're excited to bring you perspectives from our digital health thought leaders on the trends and opportunities they're seeing in the market as they relate to disruption. Joining us today is Lucia Savage, Chief Privacy and Regulatory Officer at Omada Health, and Jen Geeter, Partner at McDermott. So there's a great deal of disruption in the marketplace today, from new players coming into the market to technology innovations that could change healthcare delivery. If we look at all that's happening, it's hard to know at this point what will have an impact and what's just noise. Lucia, perhaps you could kick us off. Let's talk a little bit about where we really are today and where and how the market is heading forward. Sure. Great. And thanks for having me today.
1: So it's important to remember that we got to where we are today in 2019 because of economic stimulus investments made in 2009. So those are most famous for creating an incentive program by which physicians would use electronic health record systems in their offices and digitize the data at the clinical point of care. But you also have to remember that that was part of a stimulus package. So we, the taxpayers, funded about $40 billion all in. to drive this and we move the needle with physicians offices going from about 25% EHR used to over 92% EHR use today and almost 100% at the hospital. And so we have this incredible infrastructure of digital data that the American taxpayer really funded. And where that takes us today is people being able to use that data in new ways to improve care delivery, deliver care in remote areas where it's hard to get to the traditional building of that healthcare occurs in and actually using that data to help make the people who are providing the care, the professionals, smarter so that they understand more detail about each patient they see, their medication history, their allergies. Those are simple things. More complicated things are coming down the pike like social determinants of health. So you put that all into sort of a 10-year package and we're into the second decade of this transformation of healthcare and where that takes us is, okay, we have digital foundation, but now with advances in artificial intelligence and machine learning, computing speeds, the supercomputers we hold in our pockets, all of those things are really creating an environment where we can change the actual place that care is delivered to deliver more care with an engaged patient where the patient is. Instead of making the patient come to the system, the system's going to come to the patient. So that's kind of where we are, really big picture, but it takes a lot of different forms. It ranges from new devices that are coming online as fast as the FDA can approve them to simple things like using radio signal chips on an asthma inhaler so that you can keep track of the pollen count and the pollution levels at the same time that you're keeping track of how many times a patient is using that rescue inhaler and see if an intervention is needed. That's one novel service. And to services like Omada's where we collect digital signals into our system and use that information to make our coaching professionals deliver more effective and engaging care at the individual level. So really, kind of a broad diversity of models for how people are using new technologies.
0: It's not just one. So it does seem like a really broad landscape, even though we have some consolidation and other things happening in the market. Jen, before we move on, can you just touch on a bit of what's happening from a regulatory perspective in terms of what the major barriers and risks are and what companies could be doing to avoid them?
2: Sure. And I would just also add one additional item to Lucia's great summary, which is I think that the nature of the consumer of healthcare technology has also changed. So we have patients and we have consumers who expect to be in a much better position to understand their health and participate in their health to participate in gathering data. They embrace a data-driven life. They measure everything, track everything. And so in addition to the digital health tools that run off of EHRs, I think part of the explosion of digital health technology is how much happened really in the consumer environment, not the patient environment, and the changes in how individuals interact with their devices and their data. And most of us carry around a smartphone where the call feature is sort of the least of it. It's really all of the other apps and technology. Just the way we see digital technologies change other types of behavior, we see it changing healthcare. So I think another contributing factor to the rise of these digital health technologies is what we all expect of our ability to engage with our health care and our wellness in a meaningful way. But that also does inform some of these regulatory questions, because when HIPAA, the law that most people think of when they think about health information privacy came into be in the mid-1990s, it really actually had a very specific focus, which related to the health insurance marketplace. And so the privacy protections that are embedded in that law relate to that transaction, seeking out care from a healthcare provider and having health insurance pay for it. It was never intended to be a law of general applicability with respect to healthcare information. And now one of the regulatory things that we see that I think contributes to this question of how to be disruptive in a constructive way is that some of these digital health technologies are regulated by HIPAA, which is I think the public's stand-in for what it means to have health information privacy. And lots of these technologies are not. Uh, They sit outside of the HIPAA regulatory framework. So one thing I, I think that we are seeing is a rise of digital health tools. The use of those tools is not always going to be transparent as to whether or not they are HIPAA regulated or not to an average member of the public. Thinking about how to navigate health information as it migrates through different healthcare environments individual, the hospital, the provider, the wellness coach. I think we also have health information does not stop at state lines, so we have these technologies that need to be portable. That's different than your old-fashioned medical record, which sort of sat at a physical location, didn't go very far very often. So you have digital health tools that are on the move, not just across the country, across state lines, but globally. And different jurisdictions regulate health information very differently. And you know we we talk a lot about the information highway. That's a probably a, an image that people hear. But we actually aren't really regulating data the way that we regulate streets and roads. So when you cross from one state into another, it's not like all the rules of the road change. Maybe the speed limit ticks up or ticks down, but basically you drive from one state to the next without change. When it comes to information, we really have a very segmented disjointed system and you know that's something that digital health developers have to take into account I
1: think Jen is right, but I want to add two more things from my perch now that I'm out of the government and working in a digital health company. It's an interesting feature of HIPAA, which Jen's right. It had a particular purpose in 1999, but the regulations are, in fact, quite broadly drafted. And anyone who bills the government with a national provider identifier gets swept up into HIPAA. And in fact, Omada bills with an NPI, and we are 100% within HIPAA. And so it's very hard for the consumer in the wild to look in their app store and know which app or which software they might use that is both appropriately private and secure and also clinically efficacious. That's the consumer facing part of the problem. And then there's a similar problem, which takes me back to billing, which is we haven't really figured out now that we've laid this foundation for digital health infrastructure, how to in fact bring digital health into regular health care so that the reimbursement rules apply and therefore the privacy and security rules apply. And it's a little bit complicated, but for the Lawyers who might be listening, they'll know exactly what I'm talking about. And I think that that is kind of the challenge of the next 10 years is to figure out, and we've laid this foundation, how do we in fact build the entire healthcare system in a way that incorporates what people want, which is to use these digital tools. And I'll just give one example. Today, I learned that the Health and Human Services Office of the Chief Technology Officer is running a contest to see who can build the best app that will interact with state immunization registries so that parents can get a digital record of their children's immunizations. Gosh, I wish I had had that when I was filling out all those forms when my kids were little.
0: So you mentioned some of the nuances of your organization in particular as it relates to HIPAA and other regulatory perspectives, but can you take just a second, Lucia, to help us understand really what digital therapeutics is and what that landscape in particular looks like? Sure. So there is a digital therapeutics alliance and Omada
1: participates in it. And I think our founder, Sean Duffy, is one of the several people who seems to have coined that phrase. The idea behind it is that it's a therapeutic, something that will help you improve your health or delay illness, just like any other therapeutic, but it's based on digital technology. I think that was the original idea. It's now kind of evolved over time, and there are a wide diversity of digital therapeutics. For example, there are organizations where the therapeutic is really a digitally enabled prescription activity. So that's kind of cool, but it's completely different from what Omada does. And Omada is also a digital therapeutic in that We provide a therapeutic diabetes prevention program and management of type 2 diabetes using a digital platform that connects professionals to people. But you can see just in the way I've teed that up, two wildly different ways of using digital technology to track important compliance and health promoting activity by an individual and connecting that to their professional, but in really different ways.
0: So is that part of the distinction then between the ones without human intervention and then ones like Omada, which you've described as that more tech-enabled healthcare service? Yes, I like that phrase, and that's what I've been trying to use. But I will be honest, I don't think that phrase has taken off wildly yet. (laughs) Well, maybe we can help you today. That'd be awesome. So broadening back up, certainly including digital therapeutics and that landscape in the conversation, but broadening back up to digital health tools generally. We have been hearing a lot of criticism about the inefficient and poor outcomes across so many apps and other tools out there. Jen, in your opinion, what does it mean for disruption to actually be what we're talking about today, which is constructive? So I think there's probably
2: two main features to this. The first is that when you think about disruptive innovation, that catchphrase, it's really about a new way of looking at things, a willingness to sort of discard traditional ways of doing things, think outside the box, break things down to build them up better. When you're talking about innovation like that in the healthcare arena, you're talking about doing that in a very heavily regulated environment and a very normative environment. And I think those norms matter. So there's there's lots of things about the way, for example, providers and patients interact that are actually written down in laws. And there's just a lot that is about trust and norms, what we've come to expect and how patients and physicians or healthcare providers and patients will interact. You have a system that's used to operating a certain way. And a lot of those operative norms and laws are there for a reason. They serve important functions. And then you have innovators who are saying, I want to make sure to look at this problem creatively. I want to step back and think about it differently. And sometimes in the process of breaking down things that are inefficient, things that actually don't work well for healthcare stakeholders and patients, they break down things that do work well. So, One way for disruption to be constructive is to pick your battles. Figure out the things that need to be changed and change those, but understand who you are selling your product to. Understand the regulatory environment that hospitals and health plans and healthcare providers and behavioral health specialists have to work in so that if they're attracted to your technology and they think that you have a better way of doing things, you're not shifting a regulatory burden onto their shoulders. You haven't designed your technology in a way where really they can't adopt it. And we see this a lot, especially around data privacy. We see technologies that do indeed do things better. But the way in which the data moves around, the data assumptions, the way in which data is treated as an asset and has to go from place to place and be used in certain ways can be really hard to implement, even with a lot of creativity. But had they thought about the environment in which their technology would actually have been deployed, they could have built into the architecture ways to honor those legal and normative requirements while still being disruptive in all the ways that make the technology more productive, more powerful than its predecessor. So I think that's one way to think of your innovation being constructive is to to really sort of pick your battles. Another way to think about constructive disruption is to think about what it means for a product to be ready to bring to market. So a lot of these digital health technologies are regulated by the FDA, and then the FDA is going to be the arbiter of when the product is demonstrated to be safe and effective. But lots of these digital health technologies, for a variety of reasons, wouldn't sit under the FDA's rubric. And so how do we decide when the product performs well enough to be really safe and effective to release into the marketplace. And here I think you see kind of a, a little bit of a clash with typical development models where you're building a new technology and you're looking for that minimally viable product, a product that performs well enough that there's going to be a public appetite for it, but nonetheless is going to need launch 2.0 and launch 3.0 and so forth. How do we map that model of development where you release things into the marketplace and you find over time how they can be improved upon in a healthcare space where design deficiencies can have real consequences for safety and effectiveness? And so, another way to think about being disruptive in a constructive way is to have real substantiated information that demonstrates that your product does what you say it does and how well it does it. And that concept of sort of actually researching your product, running studies on your product, amassing credible evidence that you could show, for example, to the FTC to substantiate the claims you want to make about your product. That is a balancing act to be innovative, be cutting edge, but also understand how your product will be used and the consequences of folks relying on it. So I think that's another important piece of responsible innovation.
1: I agree 100%. AMADA has 11, maybe 12 peer-reviewed studies publicly published on our website. And I think that we have really led the digital health community in the importance of medically proving that your product preserves and or enhances health, whether you do it because we think of ourselves as a provider and we want to have the same caliber of care and outcomes as people that are all human versus human and digital, or to prove it to the FTC, it doesn't matter. And, and in that respect, I think that the FDA's model, not to get us down the rabbit hole of devices, but they're thinking very far ahead about the role software is going to play in their domain. And I think that a really thoughtful innovator will think ahead about the role that software and digital technology is going to play in the domain of healthcare in which they find themselves. And it's not always going to be devices. So for us, we think a lot about reimbursement from the federal government because we are a provider. We're not a device. Other people may have different ways of delivering the care or the service or the product that they've developed. It may be FDA-ish and it may be service-ish and it may be something new that we haven't thought up yet, but Jen is right. There are a lot of rules in healthcare and they're here for really important reasons like keeping people safe and avoiding fraud. Those are the two big ones. So you have to think about that as you bring your concepts to market. You cannot move fast and break things. As my buddy DJ Patil says, you have to move thoughtfully and change things and fix things. And so that's kind of where we find ourselves at Omada. We have a very strong view about the importance of science-based care. And we actually have a whole research director in our medical affairs unit whose sole job it is to manage our research projects. That's not true for every digital health company.
0: So it's interesting, though, that you're seeing those changes, obviously, within your company, and I assume within your segment a little bit more broadly. Are there ways, Lucia, you're seeing advancements in digital therapeutics causing constructive disruption across the industry? Well, Omada has a lot of copycats, and it's
1: something we're kind of proud of. There are many other smaller companies that have taken the concept we have, where there's a protocol that connects a person to a coachy sort of person, and it may be... Be in different clinical domains. So, for example, there's a company that uses this basic model, but for cardiac rehab, and their coaches are cardiac rehab nurses. And there are a lot of models like that evolving. And so, we're very proud of that fact. And we like the fact that we have competitors because they keep us on our toes. But it's also true that back to the stimulus package, I and mean, there's billions and billions of venture capital going into this sector. I mean, obviously, only one in a hundred or one in a thousand of companies will really succeed and drive clinical improvements at the same time. So you're gonna see a lot of ideas that people pursue
0: that may or may not fail, just like in any medical research. So we know, too, that there's a lot of great ideas out there, but great ideas don't come to market on their own, right? So it's helpful to have a lot of options out there for fueling and funding digital health innovation, constructive and otherwise, whether that's PE investments, vendor partnerships, accelerators, etc. would love to hear from each of you, and Jen, maybe you could start with your thoughts, what are some of the best ways that companies can tap into the growing digital health innovation community and drive that constructive disruption with the funding that they need?
2: Great question. So I think, one, we do a lot of work doing due diligence on digital health technologies when buyers are interested. And we also help smaller companies build, obviously, in the hopes that maybe someday they'll be part of an acquisition strategy. And One of the things that we recommend to companies that are still developing or as part of the diligence, as part of an acquisition process, is to really look at the data use rights. So oftentimes I think from a privacy and security lens, companies are a bit narrow. It's, you know, do we have encryption? Do we have a security program? All of which is critically important. You want to make sure you're really thinking of your data as an asset, just like you would any other type of asset. And think about all the different ways in which you might want to leverage that asset. So one challenge that we see for digital health companies is they're very focused on their technology. Obviously, that makes sense. But that technology is processing data, and the data is very valuable. And it's valuable beyond just the purpose for which it was initially collected. So thinking through those data strategies, thinking through that data mapping, thinking through challenging questions of consent, opt-in, opt-out, notice, thinking through types of information and how you want to leverage different. Buckets of information within your data library, all of those data asset strategies go above and beyond just privacy and security. They build on it, but they go beyond privacy and security. That's a really important way to contribute to thoughtful innovation so that not only can your technology do what you envision for it, but you are generating data over time that can have additional purposes that can enhance your mission or could enhance the mission of a potential collaborator. So I think that's. That's one important thing that we see along the continuum. I think another important concept that I see is a lot of these digital health technologies start off strongly as either consumer-facing, meaning they're offered outside of a traditional healthcare provider or health plan contact, or they're offered decidedly on, let's say, the HIPAA side of the line on behalf of providers and plans. But over time, they find that they really want a dual strategy. So they want a portion, for example, of their digital health app to be offered through traditional provider channels, and they want a consumer-facing version. That is definitely doable. It takes some creative data architecture and some planning. And so I think that's another place where you can be forward-thinking is trying to envision different deployments of your technology or variations on your technology and building the architecture to support that.
1: I think Jen is right that a data strategy, I'm a privacy officer, of course, I think a data strategy is important. As an executive in this medium-sized, still startupy digital health company, I think an important thing to think about is, what is it you're trying to accomplish? And I just said this to a group of very young founders a couple weeks ago that Jen's right, you could start down the B2C path And decide that really to grow or to accomplish the goals you're trying to accomplish from a health perspective you need to pivot and you may need to retool what you're doing from a regulatory and contracting and your business model perspective that there's Healthcare has got these uh, layered different aspects to it, whether it's retail facing, like we all experience when we run to the store and buy Kleenex because we have a cold, Kleenex is not FDA regulated, or buying an app in the app store to help us manage some part of our health life that wasn't prescribed by a doctor, it isn't offered by a HIPAA covered company, or we're using a tool that comes straight, square into the healthcare system, either through our doctors and hospitals or a company like Omada. All those are different choices the consumers are gonna make and the that the businesses are gonna drive by how they present themselves in the marketplace. And data strategy can be a really important part of that, but it's not really the be all and end all of it. There are definitely digital companies that are building around a data strategy, but there are plenty that are really trying to actually improve the outcomes in health and find a way to deliver healthcare in a new way that fills in spaces or maybe even flips the dynamic of what we have now where you're sick, you go to the doctor. Here, it's you've got tools to manage keeping yourself healthy and you go to the doctor when you don't have those tools available or you're so severe you really need the direct care of say an institution. Sandra Hernandez of the California Health Foundation says it really smartly. She says, let's let the computers do what they're really good at, which is finding patterns and stuff like that, so that the professionals can do what they're really good at, which is listening to
0: people and addressing their health needs. So a lot to think about for sure. As Jen well knows, at this point, my favorite question in all of our podcasts to ask our guests uh, is what their one or two key takeaways really are for the digital health companies and their leaders who are listening, because we we always cover so much ground and it can be so complex. I'm going to, Lucia, stick with you and ask you to tell me what is one or two key takeaways for our listeners around how they can be productively disrupting the market. And We just touched on some of them, but let's just recap.
1: Sure. Well, I think if you want to engage with the digital health company, you should look at it science for sure. That's one. And then second, you have to sort of discard your prejudices and your habits. For example, in business, we tend to sort of think, oh, software, you know, 10 years ago, we thought software was enterprise software loaded on your own servers, etc. And now you think software is software as a service, like any number of a dozens of billions of dollars of companies. But in healthcare, that's not true. Just because software is used to improve the way the care is delivered doesn't make the company a software company. We don't call it fax care. We don't go to the doctor and call it EHR care. It's just healthcare. And I think the next iteration of that is more digital intelligence within the healthcare delivery system. And so you really have to divorce yourself from the way you may have thought healthcare worked before. So that's two. And then I think the third one is recognize what people's real lives are like. Your employees, your patients, whoever it is, right? They are on their phones that we are carrying around in our pockets, these little supercomputers, and they are managing their whole lives and the lives of their children and maybe their elderly parents all through this tool. And we need to actually strengthen their ability to do that because our lives are not going to get easier.
0: Great, and Jen, what about you? What are your thoughts in terms of how folks can be most constructively disruptive?
2: So I think everything that Lucia said is terrific. I would say let technology be good at what technology can be good at, but don't forget people. There's still a role for human beings. We wanna look at ways in which technology and traditional stakeholders are synergistic. I think a second thing is to be nimble. Things are changing so fast. The regulatory landscape is always going to be in catch up mode. So think about, of course, what the law requires, but really think about how you would want to be treated. What would be your expectations? What would be the expectations of your friends and neighbors? because I think development is happening in many cases sort of outpacing the regulatory environment, which means we all have the opportunities to be good stewards of how these technologies are deployed and need to remain nimble and open to changing circumstances. And then the third thing that I would suggest is look for opportunities with public engagement. I think the public is eager to engage on this topic, that's been my experience. Think of ways in which they can be part of the process for refining technology, getting feedback on how it's used. It will make for a better product, it will make for more stickiness with customers and patients, and I think it will ultimately improve healthcare because technology will be doing its best work to improve healthcare.
0: Lucia Savage, Jen Geter, thank you both so much for your insights today, and thanks to all of you for joining us. For more analysis about collaborative transformation, you can check out McDermott's Health and Life Sciences news blog at healthlifesciencesnews.com. This material is for general information purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice or any other advice on any specific fact or circumstances. No one should act or refrain from acting based upon any information herein without seeking professional, legal advice. McDermott Will memory makes no warranties, representations, or claims of any kind concerning the content herein. you and the contributing presenters or authors expressly disclaim of all liability to any person in respect of the consequences of anything done or not done and reliance upon the use of contents included herein. Copyright 2019, McDermott Will and Emory, all rights reserved. Any use of these materials, including reproduction, modification, distribution, or replication, without prior consent of McDermott is strictly prohibited. This may be construed as attorney advertising, prior results do not guarantee a results do not guarantee a outcome.